out there. One to the back. Latang has it. Waits and gave it on over to Sheary. A shot he Don, did you get a chance to listen to our interview last week with the virtually unbookable Tom Verducci? No, I haven't yet. I have not. It's too bad because I am curious as to what you thought about the quality and my, I guess, decision to Oh, you said the just go with it. Yeah, Because yeah. I got an email from someone who essentially said I should have hung up on Tom Verducci. Oh, is that bad? I didn't think it was that bad. I do remember you mentioning it um, d- during our part of the podcast that it got bad and that it clears up. It almost, started almost... bad. It, st- it sounds in the beginning like, like he's driving in the car with the window open. Right. And then it sounds like about four minutes in, he closes the window. Yeah. I mean, I've listened to, I mean, I use the word professional radio or podcast where something is bad. And if it's just a caller... Then they're like, look, buddy, you got a bad connection. Sorry, we'll get you next time. But, I mean, if it's... it's Tom Verducci. Right. I mean, <laughs> if, it's, if it's someone that they've tried to book, they usually fight through it. And if he keeps getting disconnected... I've, I've heard shows where the guy will even get disconnected three or four times. And they'll just eventually say, like, I guess this isn't going to work. But, you know, you take what you can get with guys like that. We did a... I think it was a 30-minute interview with him. And six minutes of it were bad. And if you didn't get through that six minutes because it was so bad for you, I'm sorry. Yeah, you listen back. So you, but, like after the email, you listen back to it. Yeah. Yeah, it was six minutes. Yeah, what can you do? Yeah. Uh, we're just not I, – I, you know, I was – I'm friends with a guy who – he has a podcast. I would mention it. I could probably figure out what it is. Uh, and they had a guest stiff the other night. Okay. And I think they kind of are in a position where if a guest stiffs, like I think that, see, we, we piece our show together during the week. Right. I might record an interview on, like this week. I recorded the first interview on Monday mm-hmm. at one o'clock in the afternoon. I recorded the second interview on Tuesday around four o'clock in the afternoon. And now here we are on Thursday at 10 o'clock PM and we're going to record the parts that will go before, in between, and after those interviews. Right. Yeah, we try to make it as seamless as possible, but we also don't hide that we're doing that because that'd be... Right. So that's how this show works, where I think that one works where they have an hour or two designated and they record their show. Mm-hmm. And if they have a time scheduled for a guest to call in and that doesn't happen, then they go without the guest on that show. And it was a writer from Sporting News, which... It's unbelievable to me that you could work at something like Sporting News, which is a magazine that doesn't even have magazines anymore because, right. you know, it's it's the Radio Blast, at the Radio Blast on Twitter. Really nice guys, www.theradioblast.com. I recommend their podcast for sure. Uh, nice dudes, working hard, not that different than us, and they get stiffed. And that sucks. And I want to find the guy's name. Here it is. 
He's a Sporting News NBA writer, and his name is Sean Devaney, uh, if I said that right. D-E-V-E-N-E-Y. So fuck that Maybe guy. Maybe Devaney? I think I knew a, a guy around here named Devaney. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that, that's, that stinks. Yeah, I mean, that That's the sucks. one thing that's always been kind of amazing to us is the amount of people, especially early on, before we had any credibility, is we need the guests more than the guests need us, but they would... St- still come out i mean we had peter king by what like the fourth show or something crazy like that i mean it was real early on Yeah, joe poznanski was on the sixth show right you know richard deitch was on the second show jeff pass on the first show right so i mean these are big big names in their fields and they they made the time and they stayed with their commitments so yeah it sucks uh but i guess the greater point is just that i still don't think we're in a position to hang up on tom verducci no, right. I think if he agrees to be on and we agree on a time and he answers the call, I kind of take it as is. Plus, I don't. I mean, we had a problem with Jonah Carey once before, not necessarily with him, but uh, we had a, an issue on our end. It was my my bad piece in the podcast about together uh, when I edited it. But uh, if Tom Verducci is waiting to send, something yeah, Jonah out, was mad because what happened? We can explain that situation. What happened is when we pieced the podcast together... I glued like two segments back-to-back that were the same segment... Instead of the Jonah Carey. Instead of the Jonah Carey one. So he was just not on the podcast for a couple hours. Right. Uh, And he got back to me and he was mad because he had blocked off time. Right. That in his mind was going to be spent promoting whatever he was doing at the time or talking about something. Right. And he gave him something to tweet to his fans and and whatever. So I, I assume Verducci has some of the same motivation, so... I don't know. I don't know how happy he'd be like if afterward you're just like, yeah, it was unusable, you know. So, for six of the thirty minutes, if it's bad, I guess we could have maybe cut part of it, but that would have maybe felt. Weird I thought too. about that, but it would have just made it every it, with the to cut the first six minutes. It just been so out of context. Yeah, you would have really had to yeah. explain it. So I don't know. Uh, the interviews for today are recorded, and the quality is flawless. <laughs> it's episode six, season sixteen, June third, two thousand sixteen. Uh, I have no idea if we'll be here next week. I kind of feel for some reason like not. My guess is that we're going to miss one week of the podcast for the baby. Yeah. Um, It's a little bit trickier than when Don is a baby because that just means Don can't come that week. Where if I'm having a baby, it it's means in your house. I can't come that week and I can't book people and I can't interview well, right. people yeah, yeah. and – do you book people and then what do you do with the interviews if the baby comes and we don't get to do our part? Yeah, it's a so hard. I don't know how we get through this. It's a hard time of the year to, I mean, we have, uh, what do you call it? Like put an interview in the can kind of that is not timely. But our interviews now or our content now is going to be pretty timely with the NBA and NHL playoffs and whatever else. I almost should have taken the two interviews from this week. And said they can wait a week and done NBA or NHL this week. But we'll see how it goes. We're not going to make any definite decisions ever because my wife still isn't due until June 15th. So, I mean, if the baby doesn't want to come out naturally, she still wouldn't be induced for like 14 days. So, Oh, wow, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's not like we can make a decision today. Right. Uh, We'll see. We'll be here next week or we won't, I guess. The show today is very good. Uh, Grant Wall, 
I should have done this on the air, Don. I should have asked you how many Twitter followers do you think Grant Wall has? I would have been way off. Grant is the uh, senior writer at Sports Illustrated covering soccer. Right. He also covers soccer for Fox Sports on television. Uh, and he's a great guy. This is his third time he's been on the podcast. But I guarantee he would have been on more if we would have asked. The thing with soccer is we don't do it a lot, and we've spread it out over a few guys. Like last time when the World Cup was played, we had Rob Stone from Fox Sports on. Okay. To talk about the World Cup. So Yeah, when you asked me the question, that was my exact thought is soccer is a tough call because depending he's a US guy, so I'm s I don't know what his reach is. What did you guess? I think I guessed like a hundred thousand. Yeah, and it's seven hundred thousand. Yeah. And uh, he, on last week, now's edition of Sports Illustrated, has a cover story on Lionel Messi. Um, and another story in the magazine, which is really funny. So there's about 11 or 12 pages in this magazine. And there's only, I mean, these magazines are thinning out, right? Yeah, yeah. And about 11 of them are uh, <laughs> Grant's work, great work on soccer. And he got roasted by Mike Francesa on the Mike Francesa show really? last week. Francesa is talking about what a waste it was, and he doesn't care about soccer. And uh, Francesa is funny. But, uh, He's got to be careful. I mean, that he doesn't sound like a dinosaur. Yeah, he you just know, doesn't. You know what I mean? Nobody, he could just say anything. People could say that nobody cares when, about baseball anymore either. When when Mike sounds like a dinosaur, we laugh about him sounding like a dinosaur. Sure, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like works for him somehow. Uh, but Grant will join us to talk about Lionel Messi and Copa America, which actually kicks off tomorrow, I believe, uh, in the United States. It's the first major soccer tournament in the United States since the 1994 World Cup. And also this month uh, will be the start of the Euro 2016. So we'll have that as well. So Yeah, Copa America starts tomorrow. Yep. Um, so we'll do that with Grant. Uh, we have the book club. Uh, it's still your favorite band is Killing Me. Uh, by Stephen Hyden. And, of course, we will also have a first-timer today. Uh, not only her first time on the podcast, but the first time the wife of a guest on the podcast will join us. as Catherine Perlman, the wife of Jeff Perlman. Really? And the host of a new podcast called The Sports Parent uh, will join us to talk about uh, her podcast, which is about sports parents. Who are crazy. Yeah. Did you get into that documentary? Uh, we didn't get into any specific documentary, but we got into specific issues, I'm sure, that were in the documentary. Yeah, I can't remember what the documentary is called. It just came out not too long ago, and it's pretty popular. Yeah, so we talk about sports parenting, why she's doing the podcast, parenting in general. We talk about the gorilla. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> the day we recorded with, the day I recorded with her was like the height of Gorilla Gate. Yeah, and everyone's an expert. Which was like gorillas. a parenting issue, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so we talked to her about that. And then we'll finish with one last thing. So let's get started now with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. We really need to update this drop. How long <laughs> has Jamarcus Russell been out of the league? I don't know. We talked about him last week with the most embarrassing jerseys. Holy hell. All right. The NHL playoffs are almost over. The Stanley Cup yeah. finals. Last week when we had a podcast, we didn't know who was going to be in it. 
This week, the Pittsburgh Penguins are two wins away from their fourth cup. So let's just start with what were your impressions of the first two games of the cup? You watched them, I assume. I did. To some degree, at least. Yeah, they weren't that good. Uh, I'm, again, kind of bored by it. I think last night's game got good for about the last period in overtime, but it was kind of boring. I saw your brother posted something about it being a snooze fest. And uh, I think, and if you're a San Jose fan, this is probably driving you nuts too, I think a lot of that has to do with the officials kind of eating their whistles. Like, it, that hasn't helped the flow of the game. Like, you maybe would think it would. Uh, just you got two teams with a lot of stars on them. Maybe that would let them play but it doesn't seem to have worked that way now i think it's i would think the opposite you're not letting the stars skate i mean right yeah if you're out there and you're not grabbing onto someone all the time you're making a mistake because and if you're a san jose fan and i mean and by the way i think this is a huge plus for san jose sure they have a better power play yeah which they'd like to see out there so sure but think about how the clutching and grabbing is slowing down the games and how much faster Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh looks. is. Yeah. So if this game was being played with both teams being allowed to be as fast as they could be, right? I don't think that San Jose would have a chance. Yeah, I mean, out. you'd have to. I mean, what is their power pay clicking at? It's it was close it's in to, the thirties. Yeah, right? I mean, it's so. I mean, if they could get a power play goal or two a game, maybe that offsets that a little bit. But yeah, they haven't been good. I mean, they have been outplayed. They've been both games essentially dominated. Yeah, I thought the first game was okay. I mean, the first game it was fun. The first period was really interesting to watch. Just the Penguins kind of run them out of the building. Right. The second period was interesting to see the Sharks respond. Maybe that's more what I mean. Is it's not all that competitive for as close as the games have been. Uh, San Jose has just been dominant. Very lucky to be in the games. Yep. Uh, San Jose has been very lucky. Yeah. What's his name? I always want to call him Marvin. But that's the football player. Martin Jones uh-huh. has been incredible. Yes, very like, good. Pretty much the whole playoffs. Yeah. He's, he's been great. Uh, I was a little annoyed last night, and we talked about this on Twitter last night. The only penalty in the NHL that's called 100% of the time is the ridiculous penalty they call when the defenseman shoots it out of his zone in, in the offensive zone. Right. That's the only thing that's 100%. Yep. And to me... Uh, when you slap a guy in the face with your stick, they need to call that every time. I don't care if you're letting it go. I don't care if it's overtime. I don't care. Yeah, that had to be a makeup call if for the one s- they missed earlier, right? The pretty blatant one they missed but earlier. That has to be called all the time. No, Anytime absolutely. you see it, yeah, you have to call it. I think every penalty should be called every every so, time. But and you know, after the 2006 lockout, we were sort of get, we sort of had that for a few years, and everyone loved the game. And all the goals that were being scored. That's and what stats went out, up. And now somehow we've let the old Canadian mentality of hockey and calling hockey yep. drift back into the game. We're getting a more boring product. Yeah, I don't think anyone's more guilty of eating whistles in like any other sport in big moments than the Yeah, basketball is bad too. Yeah. Uh, basketball and, and hockey, are they're very bad. We read about this in scorecasting though. Officials would rather miss a call than make a wrong call it's like loss aversion a that little bit. call that they let go the highest it's so obnoxious i mean nobody is around those two players that was malkin right it's right it? in the middle of the ice yeah right at the blue line right in the middle the two guys there's no chance that one of the four refs and any ref can call high sticking right doesn't have to or the linesman can call high sticking right um so it's just it's egregious and it's annoying and it's just as annoying that they didn't call the one in the sharks. Yep. If you high stick a guy in the face, they have to call it. Someone on someone on Reddit made a point 
And it's an interesting point. If you're going to eat your whistles and call nothing, then how do you justify the calls you do make? Like, the who was that? A couture? Well, I think the kind idea is like, a little bit, like only ones that are affecting scoring chances, that yeah. kind of thing. It's obnoxious. It's it's been it's a bad job. It's it's embarrassing for the league. The game one ratings were a nightmare. Yeah. Game two was better, but it was on cable. Game two had a higher rating than game one, and game one was on NBC. Wow. Now, it was a special set of circumstances where they are against a game seven that would ultimately oh, be right. the yeah. highest rated NBA conference final game ever. And also, you know, Monday Night Raw, which did a better rating. Um, so I don't know how you <sighs> just we knew it'd be bad, right? When the teams are getting picked off. If you want to point to something like secondary that kind of did the Sabres in, like if Darcy Regeer did something right or if he just got totally lucky, it was building that team that was like shifty, fast players out of the lockout. And like you said, they called everything. Sabres had a decent power play. Uh, the, I want to say the Penguins back then had a great power play. They didn't. They weren't much five on five. Well, they're still very young. They too. had a great yeah. power play then. And then the cut, clutch and grab kind of got back into the game, and the Penguins kind of faded away, and the Sabers faded away. I mean, why would we let that back into the game of all things? I, I don't know. It's the worst. That's it's- like you know we had finally cracked down on murders in prisons, but we just <laughs> we let it crack. Do you ever watch? Uh, uh, I don't know. I, it's got to be the NHL Network, but they'll show classic games like from like the nineties. You can't and even 80s. believe how bad it's it is. Unreal yeah. the interference yeah. in those, and that's. I mean, it's nothing like that now, but it's. I mean, it creeps closer to that than it was to the call. Everything like it used to be. If you had a stick parallel to the ice, you were going to get a hooking call. Like we always say, and everyone always says, it's not our thing. But you're never really in trouble in a best of seven series till you lose a home game. The Sharks haven't lost a home game yeah. yet. Are you sticking with that, or do you think they're in trouble? No, I, I mean they've shown nothing really so far. Uh, and. Logan Couture saying that Sidney Crosby <laughs> cheats on face-offs. You think that it's going to help him? No. I mean, I, we talked about that a little bit before we started recording, but that's something that happens every year. But usually it's a coach that makes a comment along those lines, like, oh, they're getting away with diving or they're, they're getting away with uh, interference, something to make the officials maybe like even subconsciously aware of something. I don't know. What's your cut pick right now? Oh, boy. It'd be like Penguins in five. Penguins in five. Yeah. Uh, two more quick notes. I'll make my pick. We'll move on. Uh, all of the Penguins' goals in the Stanley Cup final so far have been scored by players who play college hockey. Um, and the reason the Sharks are in the Stanley Cup finals is because their stars were stars. Yeah. And so far, their stars have been invisible. No, so if they're right. going to get back in this, it's on the Thorntons and the Marlowe's and Pavelski's yeah. to do it. And to me, they feel like a team who won their cup by getting to the cup. Uh, being able to say Marlowe and Thornton are no longer two of the top five guys to play a game, games played without playing in the cup. Like, it just kind of feels like maybe getting there yeah, for was a team their that, cup. For a team that maybe, like, exercised some demons and faced a little bit of adversity getting there and, like, overcame it where in the past they would have choked or whatever, uh, they look over out of their depths. I mean, they look over their head right now. I would probably pick the Penguins in five as well. I would assume that they'll split in San Jose and that the Penguins will take care of business in game five. I mean, if home. the Sharks, no matter how ugly it looks, if they win the two home games, they need then to win the two. It's a series. Yep. I mean, it's what I, 
but they've got a If they split them, yeah. it's not getting back there, I don't think. No, probably not. I mean, even... No, probably not. So, uh, the NBA Finals are going on right now. Game one uh, between the Cavs and the Golden State Warriors. Before we get to the Finals, we have to talk about the fact that when we spoke last time, the Golden State Warriors were down 3-1. Three three to to one, one. Yeah. And it did not shock me by any means that... Oklahoma State let that slip through their fingers. I think I said on the show last week, is there any reason that it would be some kind of shocking result for a team that won 73 games to win three in a row? No, I think what we talked about that maybe makes it a little bit surprising is they were getting dominated. In, they were getting in dominated. In losses. So. Yeah. But look, at the, the Warriors won game five, which is probably what you'd expect. And the Thunder had him in Game 6, and they let it slip away. I watched the entire second half of Game 6, and the Thunder had it. They had it won. That was Saturday night, right? Yeah. I think I watched it. until it was literally 2 nothing when I was I was up camping somewhere, so I didn't catch any more than that. But They had it, and they let it slip away. And kind of when that happened, I knew they weren't winning Game 7. No, right. Yeah. So... They had their chance, and they let it slip away. And now they'll have to see what happens with Kevin Durant, who has a big decision to make. I wonder what statistics would show on that. Like a team coming back from down 3-1 or if you get, it to, get game to game seven. seven, does that team ever lose? It just feels like it's a tough spot. It'd be a mind so, at that point. It's a point. really tough spot to have lost the two, including your one home game, right. and have to go back. Uh, and I mean, I know for a fact teams seventy three and whatever are undefeated in that game, <laughs> right? So, yeah, uh, and they'll probably stay undefeated in that game. They needed that. I mean, I think if maybe you're a Bulls fan, you kind of wanted them to lose because then that season kind of fades away. Yeah, yeah, it's the eighteen and one Patriots. Yeah. So, but the NBA got their dream final. Oh yeah, and I've been surprised. Not that it seems like almost everyone's picking the Warriors, but I've been surprised that. It seems that a lot of people have picked the Warriors to do it in less games than last year. I've seen a lot of fours and a lot of fives, and it was six last year when LeBron didn't have Kyrie Irving after game one and didn't have Kevin Love at all. Hmm. So did the Warriors get that much much better better that the Cavs with Love and Irving aren't at least as good as last year? And I doubt it. I I would love to see the Cavs win. I don't have the guts to pick the Cavs. Uh, I think if you're LeBron James, you need to say they're just not going to beat me. If you still think you're the best player in the world and you, this is your chance to make a statement. I mean, he silences every critic ever if he plays an epic series and brings a championship to Cleveland this year. Oh, yeah. I mean, he silences everyone. There's nothing to say ever again. We talked about the hockey. He's in Jordan... He's in that. He's oh, on yeah, that yeah. tier. We talked about the hockey markets being terrible and the ratings. I mean, no, Cleveland's they, not a big market. But I'm not sure LeBron. what Golden State is, but it's LeBron and yeah. Curry. The, and Golden State has been drawing the biggest ratings all season long. Yeah, so they got the kind so of they a, got the dream, dream matchup, matchup yep. and it's a rebound. It's a rematch part right. two, which is even better. All right, last thing, and we'll move on. This has kind of been a long segment. I've been enjoying it, but college football is one of those. One of those, one of those things. And the NCAA in general is like this, yeah. and I guess the NFL is like this too. But you just wonder sometimes how it has any fans. 
Right, especially in college football, where we've always made the point in the show of don't gloat when your rival goes down to a scandal because Yours everyone's is around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. They all have scandals, and there's a bunch of them to talk about this week. So Baylor, who is just a few years past opening a beautiful 50,000-seat stadium, the house that RG3 built. Mm-hmm has essentially had a gut their program in the last week because I guess there's a culture of sexual assault on campus with football players and the way it's handled. Uh, Art Bryles, the coach of Baylor, fired. He's gone. Um, The president of the college, fired gone um or uh, the athletic director i think not the yeah i'm not sure he got fired <laughs> you know what i heard it was funny about two guys are fired one of the guys got fired like as the position he was at but he was going to continue to teach at the school right and ironically the thing he teaches at the school is law <laughs> I, I i don't even know what to say about it i mean yeah i mean this is one of the cases where it's like the football player was accused of rape they kept telling the girl not to pursue it or it didn't right. happen, and then she won in court. Right. Due process happened, right. and due process said she was raped. So I, what do you do for Baylor? I mean, I, what do you even say? Like, you get what you get, Baylor, right? I don't understand what these colleges have to gain by hiding this stuff. Like, does it sound that bad? Like, if a football player or any athlete gets accused of a rape or sexual assault, and the school catches them and kicks them out. That looks bad on the player. Uh, if something like this happens, then it looks bad on the player and the entire school and anyone that knew about it. Like I don't understand. It's it's a it's a bad look in general, and uh, it's disgusting. I mean, we've had this problem with the NCAA for a long time. I mean, yeah, the president was demoted. Yeah, to... his name is Ken Starr. Hmm. Uh. Demotion of President Ken Starr and sanctioning. <laughs> the athletic director uh, was sanctioned, not demoted or fired. So, so these guys must have knew something happened and pressured the girl or told the like advised the guys on how to proceed. Something because I, I heard on Adam Carolla's podcast today he was talking about like the Duke lacrosse thing, which turned out to kind of be nothing, right? The whole Duke lacrosse thing. It's like, why does the coach get fired when a player does something at a party? And I kind of agree with that, but I assume that in this case, like you said, the coach was like fostering. Well, I think Andy Staples kind of boiled boiled the whole scandal down into one paragraph. Baylor University is in the business of selling a college education that costs $54,000 a year in tuition, room, and board. Its current customer base of 16,787, better known as the student body, is 58% female. So when attorneys from Philadelphia firm Pepper Hamilton presented their scathing report that painted the university's handling of sexual violence claims as bumbling, inept, and adequate, and the football program's handling of them as unhealthy, dangerous, and possibly in violation of federal law, Jesus. there was really no other option for of the course. board. Yeah, of course. So that's Baylor. So that's 
part one of college football's awesome week here. Okay? Part two is, and Andy Staples is actually kind of in the center of this as well. There's a player who plays, he's a high school senior right now. He was the number 10, he was a five-star recruit, number 10 overall in the nation. And he's recruited to play for Mississippi State. He's involved in an altercation in his neighborhood where two women are fighting. I think one of his one of the women is his sister. Okay. This happened in March. The fight kind of gets on the ground, and I assume the girl that's losing is his sister. So he comes in. He kind of tries to break up the fight. The girl that's beating up his sister is sort of unrelenting and doesn't heed to his attempts to break it up. Uh-huh. So he punches her fi- about five or six times. Jeez. And she's laying on the ground, essentially. So he's a six-foot-five, 260-pound, 18-year-old, hovering over a female on the ground. Uh, and he punches her about five or six times. He's charged with two crimes. Uh, one, uh, some kind of uh, misdemeanor assault. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like a disturbing the peace type misdemeanor as well. Um, so what do you do? What, what in your mind, that's basically the facts of the case. Now, there's a video of this. You can watch it, and everyone did. Right. So you're Mississippi State. What do you do? I'll tell you what they did. If I'll give you the power. What do you do? I guess what you do, I mean, you're in a no-win situation. Let me give you a few more you're, facts about the kid. Okay. He's got no other record. Okay. No other history of violence. Uh, no history of any sexual assault incidents or violence incidents, whether it be from, against men or women. Um, generally speaking, it's kind of a first strike, I guess would be the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. It's a big one. Yeah. I but guess, what do you do? What I, do you do? I guess you let it play out. You let the courts handle it. Well, I mean, it's played out. He got charged with two misdemeanors, no, face, no felonies. He's not going to do any jail time. time. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's one of those tough things. Like you can be the moral authority. Now, if he here. was a regular student, yeah, this would not prevent him from be enrolling in the university. Oh, okay, the university would not stop him from enrolling into the college. Uh, because of an incident that happened when he wasn't a student that wasn't a felony. Does the NCAA have any rules against this or no? Because he's not even a not even a student student yet. Hmm. I guess the tough thing about football or any sport, uh, and it makes us make these kind of moral decisions, is like if they decide to take the high ground, then some other school is just going to pick him up. Correct, and he's the tenth best right player guy. in the country. Correct. Yeah, so. I don't know. I guess you move forward with him on your team. So they suspended him one game. Okay. And they've told him that he needs to face counseling. Okay. So counseling and one game. The Maybe if you're going to look at it that way, I guess I was looking more cut and dry. Like, do you keep the kid or cut the kid? Maybe you be maybe you could be a little more severe than that. Suspend him for four games or eight half the season or something like that. Well, you might remember that a similar situation happened in Oklahoma a few years ago with Joe Nick Joe Mixon, right? Wasn't a student yet. He was on campus taking summer classes. So a little bit different. He wasn't quite quite high schooler still. He was right. at the school. But he punched a girl in the face. 
and um, he got suspended one year. And that decision was pretty widely pounded on. Um, As being too harsh? It's not being harsh enough. Really? Now, uh, like I said, he suspended the first game of the season. He's required to participate in counseling programs through the university. I guess there's I mean, the hard part about it is it's a heat-of-the-moment thing. If you see a family member getting beat up, I guess the tough part is the six punches thing. You know, His like, name is Jeffrey Simmons. Like I said, he's a five-star recruit. Uh, he has an ongoing legal process, misdemeanor charges, no felonies. I take it he had a scholarship because of his status. I mean, obviously, he's a great player. Right. Did they? Does that affect his scholarship at all? Misdemeanors don't. Don't. Okay. Felonies would have. Gotcha. Based on conversations our staff has had with school, community, and church leaders, this incident appears to be uncharacteristic of Jeffrey. It's highly unique circumstance to administer discipline to a student for an incident that occurred prior to that individual joining our university. However, it's important that Jeffrey and other potential MSU students understand that these types of action and poor decisions are not acceptable. Of course. We accept the structure and discipline Jeffrey will be a part of of in our football program to benefit him. Jeffrey will be held accountable for his actions while at MSU, and there will be consequences for any further actions. In other words, he comes in with no strikes left. Sure. Um, I take full responsibility. This is uh, not a comment from him. That was the that was uh, comments from the, the AD mm-hmm. at Mississippi State, not a comment from the player. I take full responsibility for my actions that occurred on Thursday evening. He wrote this in March. My apology goes out to the Taylor family and especially to Sophia Taylor. What was I thinking? Honestly, I wasn't thinking. All I could think was this is my family and I'm supposed to defend my family. Yeah. I don't know. Are they getting counted for this? Too soft? Yes. Uh, Andy Staples, I don't know why I can't find his article. I'm on SI.com. Was particularly harsh uh, to the AD saying essentially – you know, um, this is the same punishment as targeting. Mm. If you get kicked out of a game for targeting, because you know this is what everyone loves to do now, right? One suspension has to equal another one or whatever, sure. right? So in college football, if you get ejected from a game from tar- for targeting, you can't play the next week or whatever. So it's the same penalty in Andy Staples' mind. I don't know what the right answer is. I don't do you, either. And this all you makes tell me- an 18-year-old kid his – like okay, so if Miss if you want Mississippi State to walk away, you need commitment from all 120 schools that they're going to walk away because right. it's not fair to hold Mississippi State to the standard if you're not going to hold everyone. Right. So let's say we get all 120 te- teams to agree he can't play Division One football. This is a tough thing. It's a then what do you do with the kid? Right. This makes me feel like. I feel like the Michael Vick thing about this. Like he got punished. He did exactly what the law told him to. He didn't skate at all because he was an athlete. It seems like this kid, like you said, if he was a non-athlete, it wouldn't affect his status at the school. He would be able to enroll. Yeah. As far as the AD knows, right? He doesn't. He asked. He said, and he he'd be able to enroll. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, we also live. In a world currently where if you make one joke the wrong way on the radio, people don't want you suspended. They want your ass fired. Like, So it's it's not a good time. Not that it's ever a good time to punch a woman six times. But 
I don't know. Would it be different if he punched her once, dragging her off his sister? Maybe it would. I, I don't know. The six times is a tough thing. Like you said, he's a six five guy or whatever. He's a big dude. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, it doesn't strike me as the classiest move, obviously, but I don't know. A guy with an otherwise clean record kind of went off the handle because he saw his sister get his ass kicked. It's tough. Did try to break it up initially. At first, right. And like you said, there's video that shows this. So It's it's, It's it's not easy to watch. It's going to follow. I mean, it's a big kid punching... A much smaller girl. Yeah. Not once, not twice, not two times, not three times. Right. And, I mean, she's in a defenseless position. Yeah, that's where it's tough. I don't know. I am not – I guess I'm just not the moral authority. I don't no, know. I'm not either. And, like you said, we've had a disagreement with this about Vic maybe a little bit, that I think the NFL is a privilege. But then, again, he did do his time. And I was talking to my brother about this actually kind of recently. And he's like, if Vic was like a waiter – and he did that. Would you tell him he could never work again as like a waiter? You know what I mean? Like what job? I'm particularly uncomfortable in telling people they can never make a living doing what they do again in general. Right. Especially for like social issues. Plus this kid is, I I don't know. He's an 18 year old kid. Hopefully he can, if that, right. Hopefully he can spin this some way positive. I, I mean, not for that one girl, obviously, but, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm always uncomfortable talking about these things because I feel like whatever we say is going to be wrong. What if Mississippi State offered the girl a scholarship? I don't know how old she is. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. She's in that's college. A, that's an interesting. That's interesting. Is that a potential solution? Because, like you said, if you cut them, some other school with less moral. What if Mississippi State says to her, "Look it." This kid did wrong. We're going to try to make him a better person. He lives in the same neighborhood you do. We want to make him better. So we're going to take him. But not only do we want him to be better, we want to help you too. You go to school anywhere in the United States and we'll pay for it. Yeah. Is that is that something? I don't know. I'm, I have yeah, no I'm idea. I'm not sure. Is I'm that, not sure if that looks that like something? you're buying the girl out. But, I mean, the, the process is I mean, over He still has it. to go to court and he still has to deal with criminal you're not asking her to drop charges right. or anything like that right yeah i don't know i, I don't know i have no yeah, idea. I, i'm on like you said these are uncomfortable all right thoughts. one one more that's a little less uncomfortable okay all right so baker mayfield have you heard about the baker mayfield rule in the big 12 i recognize the name so i'm sure i've heard it all right baker mayfield is the quarterback at oklahoma who okay. nearly won the heisman trophy last year now, Baker Mayfield is unique because Baker Mayfield was a walk-on athlete at Texas Tech. Okay. A non-scholarship player at Texas Tech for one year. And he transferred to Oklahoma and walked on at Oklahoma and earned a scholarship there. So Oklahoma wanted to have a rule passed, which exists in other conferences around the country, where you don't get charged a year, a year of your eligibility uh, for transferring from a walk a walk on situation to a scholarship situation, you lose a year of eligibility just for transferring. Typically, is that what you're saying? The rule change will allow schools to offer a scholarship to a player who intends to transfer. Players will then have to sit out a season if they decide to leave. Oh, okay, that happened. Okay, if no scholarship is offered, the player would be free to go to another Big Twelve school and play immediately. 
The change in wording to the rule. Okay, so wait. We're getting ahead of ourselves. I think I get the idea behind this. The idea of the rule is that you don't want The some... idea of the rule is that you're allowed to transfer to a scholarship situation without losing a year of eligibility. Right, and the reason they didn't want players doing that before is probably because of bigger name players, right? Not these walk-on players that are... No, this is only about walk-ons. No, I know. The rule currently is... The rule they want to change is about walk-ons. There but isn't I'm... a rule. Oh, there's no rule at all about this. Well, why, why do they make a player sit out then? I'm saying they make a player sit out because They're they don't want... They're taking his year away. In his case, that's the idea. That's what they want. What I'm saying is why does the rule exist at all? And it's because you don't want big-name players having a good Let me try again. and then moving, right? Let me try again. The Big 12 will alter the language of its current walk-on transfer rule, creating the possibility for players to transfer within the conference without losing a year of eligibility. Right. It's as simple as that. Right. The yeah, rule change why the rule existed at allows all. schools to offer a scholarship to a player who intends to transfer. They initially proposed this, and it lost because there was no simple majority. Okay. It was a five-to-five five vote, and they were going to say that Baker, Baker Mayfield would lose the extra year. But obviously that wouldn't stop him from playing that extra year in the SEC or the Big Ten or any of the schools. Oh. <laughs> so basically they're saying, look, a kid, you want to stay in school another year at Oklahoma. Well, you can't because it's against the rules in the Big 12 Conference. But you still want to stay. You can play at Alabama or Florida or Michigan right. or wherever. So they use a year of – I thought if a player transferred, he had to sit out the next season. But obviously that's not the case. They're saying he loses the rule the- change will allow schools to offer a scholarship to right. a player who intends to transfer. Players would then have to sit out a season. If no scholarship is offered, the player would be free to go to another school and play immediately. Is the idea that they shot this down just because Oklahoma has a player that would benefit? That was generally the opinion. Yeah, that's kind of shit. That's that's crappy. And <laughs> they hurt this the, poor the, kid. The spin was that they didn't want players. Luring other play teams' players with scholarships, which is idiotic because they can avoid the whole thing by just giving their player a scholarship. Right. Right? I mean. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it seems rough to penalize one specific kid because it's clearly what they're doing. He originally walked out of Texas before transferring to Oklahoma and sitting out the season. So he did sit out a season. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So they wanted to charge him for the year he was a walk-on and the year he sat out and only allow him two years at Oklahoma. Oh, okay. Now the rule would not charge him for his years a walk-on or would, would, char- would charge him the years a walk-on. He has a dead year and then three left. Who was the big-name player that I think he got sus- – he maybe was getting punished by his school and he could have transferred, but he would have had to sit out rather than play. Like, that's the reason that rule exists, right? Because you don't want big-name players having, like, a sweet season then going to, like, a better school or something like that. You don't want players just jumping around. Yeah, potentially. But, of course, that rule is not there for coaches. Yeah, that's true. Right. Coaches can abandon ship if right. they get at any time. cheat, I mean, right. essentially. Yeah. So, well, we kind of bumbled through that last part a little bit. I guess I wasn't explaining it correctly. No, I the was The point is, to... is, is in one day's time, they changed it. Yeah. So I got to think that Oklahoma said, look it. You better back us on this, or he's just going to go to. Another. We might not be in this league anymore, and we're going to look like assholes. What's the purpose of conferences play anyway? Somewhere else. I mean, that's just a money thing, too, right? Like, don't you? Yeah, well, I mean, conferences 
I mean, one, you know, you, you need to play games. So right. you have games, and then you compete for championships. And I mean, it's death to the BCS, right? And conferences were a big part of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you could. You need some kind of structure to sure. 120 yeah. teams out there. Yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. All right. That went very long. Yes. And we, it was brutal at the last five minutes there. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> went off the rail. All right. In the name of Baker Mayfield, we break, and we'll be right back with Grant Wall. All right, our next guest is from Mission, Kansas, and is a graduate of Princeton. Uh, in November of 1996, he joined Sports Illustrated, uh, where he's covered just about everything, but has settled mostly on soccer, uh, where he's a senior writer today. He also covers soccer for Fox Sports. He's making his third appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Grant. Wow, what's up, Grant? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing very, very good. Uh, enjoy Memorial Day as we talk on the holiday. Soccer never takes holidays. <laughs> it certainly uh, seems like it, you know. Uh, it's uh, One thing that's fun about covering the sport is soccer never stops. Uh, it's basically, uh, there's a game going on somewhere in the world 365 days a year. Yeah, and I was kind of trying to get a sense of where everyone's at last night when I was putting things together for the article. Cause I was obviously, I read everything in uh, the magazine last week that, that you had worked on in there and uh, was trying to understand uh, Copa America a little bit better and kind of exactly what that tournament was, why it's being played two years in a row. It's kind of piecing everything together. And one thing I noticed, you know, I have to kind of clarify this for me. It seems like many nations in the Copa America, especially, and I don't know why this wouldn't be true of the Euro as well, but it seems like I noticed it more in Copa articles that many teams have to make a decision about whether they're going to fully commit to Copa or if they're going to kind of uh, really go all out for the Olympics. Can you kind of explain why that's a conflict for some countries? Um, you know, Brazil's the only country where it's a real conflict, it seems like, uh, in the sense that uh, the Olympics... Uh, take place obviously in August and soccer is a part of the Olympics. Um, however, Olympic soccer is kind of a strange animal because on the women's side, it's the same top players in the world. You know, all the best players in women's soccer will be at the women's Olympic tournament. There's no restrictions on it. Um, on the men's side, Olympic soccer is an under 23 tournament for young players but each team is allowed to have up to three players over the age of 23 that they can bring in. Uh, and that was sort of a compromise that was reached so that FIFA doesn't want men's Olympic soccer to be a threat to the World Cup. Okay? Yeah. So that's why there's an age restriction. But they want there to be enough star power that people will want to watch and buy tickets. And so that's why they allow three players over the age of 23 per team, and Brazil uh, is prioritizing men's Olympic soccer this year for a few reasons. One, uh, the tournament's in Brazil, right. um, and they want it to look good, especially after being embarrassed uh, 
losing seven to one to Germany in the World Cup semifinal in Brazil two years ago. But also because if you could believe it, Brazil has never won an Olympic gold medal in soccer. And they've won everything else. They've won the World Cup five times, they've won every other trophy out there that's available to them, but they've never won an Olympic gold medal. And so they really are prioritizing it this year. And so Neymar, their star player, far and away their best player, uh, is going to play in the Olympics and will not play in Copa America for Brazil. And basically, very, very few players this year are playing in both the Olympics and the Copa America or the Olympics and the Euro. It's just they're so busy during the, the club season that to play in two major tournaments uh, in the same summer is a lot to ask. And the way that the FIFA calendar works, the Olympics are actually not on the official FIFA calendar, which means that uh, clubs are not required to release their players to play in the Olympics. So it gets very complicated because the Copa America is actually on the FIFA calendar. So if a national team wants a, a player for Copa America, the clubs have to release the players to play in Copa America. They cannot refuse they can refuse for the Olympics. And so Neymar's club, Barcelona, worked out a deal with Neymar, and they said, look, we'll let you play in the Olympics. We know how big it is for you and your country, but if we give you permission, because we don't have to, to play in the Olympics, we do not want you playing Copa America as well. So Neymar is not in the Copa America. Uh, That may be a long-winded response and more than you're expecting, but it is complicated. Other countries in Copa America are not sending B squads. Brazil is sending something close to a B squad because of this. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, the biggest stars for these national teams are going to be involved in Copa America Centenario coming up here in the U.S. I think it's a really interesting show of where power is in the game. Because as you were talking about the compromise made for the Olympics with the three guys over 23, when the, if you read um, Jack McCollum's book called Dream Team, on the Dream Team, they actually had a really similar negotiation when deciding to allow the NBA players in to uh, to the Olympics. But by the time the negotiations ended, it was down to one college guy, which ended up being Grant uh, Christian Leitner. Um, yeah. <laughs> like initially in those in those negotiations, it was like, okay, maybe we'll do six and six, or maybe we'll do you know. And uh, obviously, the power in that case lied with um, getting the NBA players, where it seems like. And obviously, in this case, the power lies with FIFA, ultimately. Um, so Yeah, I mean, like, soccer has a history uh, much more, you know, that the national teams and the World Cup have always taken, had more power in that relationship with the clubs and than in sports and basketball or, or ice hockey. So uh, that's changing, though, a little bit, you know. The, the clubs and soccer have more power than ever now. And, uh, so there's a bit of a give and take with FIFA on certain things. So Copa is uh, starting in June, and it's the second year in a row because they wanted to do a 100th anniversary of the tournament that started in 1916. Am I correct on that? Yeah, it's interesting because Copa America is the oldest international club or or international competition in in world soccer. It's older than the Euro is. Um, But it's always been a a South American tournament of the, the top, all the national teams in South America. Uh, they, it's, it's a weird situation because South America, they have 10 countries that participate in South American soccer tournaments. And 
it's very hard to have a tournament with 10 teams. So Copa America has almost always been a 12-team tournament where they've invited guest teams to fill those last two spots. And so most of the time that's been Mexico, the guest team, but the U.S. has participated a few times. So has uh, some Central American countries, a couple, Jamaica was in the Copa America last year. Um, even Japan has participated in the Copa America in previous occasions. So um, it's a little weird, but you know, South, South America has always been looking for uh, a way to get more nations involved in the tournament. And this proposal has been out there for a long time. I remember writing a column proposing this several years ago of a combined Copa America where you would take all the South American teams and include the U.S. and Mexico and, and top North American teams and make it a 16-team tournament because a 16-team tournament is actually a perfect size because it allows there to be just the top two teams in each group to advance like right. it is in, in the World Cup. And there's no kind of, yeah, it's, it's not kind of unbalanced you know, like a, a 2014 tournament is or, or, you know, something like that. So uh, finally, we have that this year. It's, uh, it's a special tournament, a uh, special Copa America that uh, is celebrating the 100th anniversary of Commonwealth, South American Confederation. But it's in the U.S., and it's going to get a lot of people coming to the games, and it's got a lot of top stars in it. And finally, we have a tournament between World Cups that the U.S. can participate in that is a rival to the stature of the European Championship. And, and I've always wanted that. I, I always felt like the U.S. should have more competition, more accountability between World Cups. Right. And, and this is the first tournament, obviously, on this scale that's been here since the World Cup 94, right? I mean, on the men's side, anyway. Yeah, on the men's side, it is. I mean, like I, I'm basically saying this is the biggest men's soccer event in the U.S. since the 1994 World Cup, yeah. and the, the biggest soccer event in the U.S. since the 1999 Women's World Cup, um, which is cool, you know. Hopefully, uh, it'll be something that we remember as much as, as those tournaments, you know. Um, and I, I think also, too, it sets up the U.S. if it's a successful tournament, as everyone's expecting. It sets up the U.S. to, to potentially host a World Cup in, in 2026 um, and bid for that tournament. And and I'm actually hoping that one of the legacies of this Copa America is, is that it's not just a one-off, that they decide in the future permanently to make this combined Copa America the way it works and that the U.S. would be involved in the future as well. I can't believe that they haven't had a World Cup since. I know... It's such a world event. There's many places you have to serve, but it's just like it seems like every time they try to organize one, there's this nightmare with the stadiums, and they build these stadiums that turn into giant bird nests. And it's like, well, we have the stadiums, and it seems like we certainly would support the event. Um, it seems like it'd be a no-brainer going forward for one to come here, no? From a logistical perspective, the U.S. is an amazing place to have a World Cup. Um, I find it interesting that the U.S. in 94 still holds the all-time record for ticket sales for a World Cup, even though that World Cup only had 24 teams and fewer games than the current 32-team World Cup has. Right. Um, so clearly, from a logistical perspective, the U.S. could host a World Cup tomorrow with our stadium and our infrastructure, and that's a huge selling point. Plus, people tend to like coming to visit the United States, but... 
then again, uh, the FIFA corruption scandal that we've seen over you know the past several years, a lot of those are tied to uh, World Cup votes. And you remember in 2010 when uh, they awarded World Cup 2018 to Russia on the same day as they awarded World Cup 22 to Qatar. <laughs> and basically ever since then is when we've uh, seen FIFA, you know, you know, be thought of as this truly corrupt organization. And then last year having uh, the U.S. Department of Justice put the hurt on them and, and arrest people and indict people. Um, so, you know, FIFA's kind of slowly trying to get out of that now. They've elected a new president. and So I, I think the U.S. has a, a much likelier chance of winning the right to host World Cup 26 than it did in that vote that took place back in 2010. Uh, is the U.S. team a player in this tournament? Is there, Are they a team that can be taken seriously as a contender? I think the U.S. should be taken seriously in this tournament. Uh, I mean, there's, there's pressure on the U.S. and Jurgen Klinsmann, the coach, in that if they don't get out of their group, and it's not an easy group, uh, you've got Colombia, Costa Rica, and Paraguay, all of them have made the quarterfinals of the World Cup, in 2010 or 2014, uh, if the U.S. doesn't get out of this group on home soil, there are going to be quite a few people saying Jurgen Klinsmann should lose his job. Uh, I don't think he would, because I don't think Klinsmann would ever lose his job for something that's not connected to the World Cup or World Cup qualifying, and this tournament isn't. But, um, you know, there's pressure in that sense. But the U.S. is also playing some pretty good soccer lately, uh, probably about the best soccer I've seen them play since the World Cup in 2014. And there's no reason that they couldn't make a deep run in this tournament. Um, you know, they, they, there's you know, the talent is there to base to beat any any team in this tournament on it. You know, on a good day for the U.S. And I don't think uh, you know people should come in just sort of saying the U.S. doesn't have a chance. The, you know, the U.S. should play well in this tournament. All right. Yeah. I've always felt like the German coach is just. I just feel like he's a bad way to grow the game here. I don't know. Maybe they're beyond the point of needing it, but he's just—he's just a strange face of the of the franchise, if that's the way to describe it. And I, I don't know. They did do a, a very good job in in 2014 at the World Cup, and I mean, I think at least at this point, that's really what matters in this country when it comes to soccer is World Cup. Well, it, it's interesting at the stage of development that U.S. soccer is in. From a pure results perspective, you know the U.S. did pretty well at World Cup 2014. Yeah. They they got out of one of the most difficult groups in the tournament, um, and actually had a chance late to to beat Belgium in the round of 16. But on the other hand, if you're talking about it from a from a playing perspective, uh, the U.S. didn't play great soccer in that World Cup and. So I still think at the stage of the U.S. is in right now that the actual result and how far you go is the most important thing. But you know how good a soccer you play should matter as well, and hopefully will matter more and more as we move forward. But uh, Jurgen Klinsmann was hired, uh, you know, back in 2011 and came in and, and said that he wanted to change the way the U.S. plays and make the U.S. a more proactive team against the top teams in the world. And it's easy to say that it's another thing to do that. Uh, you know, there's some exciting young players in, in U.S. soccer who I think are going to help the U.S. play a more attractive style, and, and we've seen glimpses of it already. Um, 
you know, guys like Christian Pulisic, who's just 17, 17 yeah. already playing in Germany at a high level for Dortmund, and he's gotten off to a nice start for the U.S. Uh, going to Nagby is really a, a good attacking player, and he's getting more more time. Bobby Wood had a really good season in Germany and transferred to a Bundesliga team, Hamburg. Uh, real goal-scoring threat. So, you know, there's a mix of veterans and new guys, and uh, we'll see if the U.S. can put it together here. One last thing about Copa, and it ties into your your art, the cover story, and I saw it this week on um, on Messi, and uh, it's pretty interesting. That one thing I wanted to ask you is kind of a quick aside. Now, the story was kind of uh, authored by you through Messi. Do you speak the same language he does, or did you have to go through the layer of interpretation there as well? How did that work? No, I do speak Spanish, and it came through on this occasion because we did the interview entirely in Spanish. Um, okay. And Argentina is kind of my adopted country. I started visiting there in 1994. Uh, I wrote my thesis in college on politics and soccer in Argentina. And um, so my vocabulary is not huge in Spanish, but it's, I can speak it pretty well. And so we had a nice conversation, and uh, that's the interview that ended up forming the base for uh, Messi's story, by the way, as Messi has told to me. Right. Uh, it also ended up you know, being part of the video that we did uh, for yeah. SI Films mm-hmm. where you know, there was some good response to it. Messi hasn't done a ton of interviews over the years, and so some people said to me that they, they heard Messi's voice more in that video than they've ever heard it before. That's a good thing, I, I take it. Yeah, I thought he came off as really likable. I sent the article to a friend who's a big Barcelona fan, and mm-hmm. it's like, just you know, kind of tell me what you think about it and what kind of impressions you got. And the one thing that I got that he didn't at all is I kind of felt like he was trying a little bit too hard to make it seem like he's just so excited to go on summer vacation in America. I don't know. <laughs> it came off as a little disingenuous to me. Like, here's this guy who's, like, obviously very wealthy, who's 28, 29 years old now, and he's basically never been here other than to play a couple games. And but just all the excitement. I mean, he could have come here anytime pretty much. I know he's a busy player. I get it, but like, come on, like all of a sudden he's just so excited to come to America all of a sudden. It just seemed a little weird to me, but my friend thought I was being unfair. Your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think you're being unfair. I think, uh, <laughs> I didn't take it as disingenuous at all. Um, you know, this is a guy who, because his life has been soccer and he barely gets any vacation whatsoever, has never had a chance to, to spend much time in this country. He's only played a, a few friendlies for Brazil and, or for Argentina and Barcelona. Um, but one thing I do know is that uh, for a long time, somebody uh, told me who, who's worked with Messi that uh, sort of his avatar on Skype was a picture of him at a young age, fairly young age, in his te- late teens in Times Square in New York City. And he was just by himself. Nobody recognized him and uh, you know, clearly that was kind of a cool symbol to him. Um, and I run into that a fair amount with top soccer stars. They really love the United States. And, uh, you know, I think that comes a lot from consuming U.S. culture, whether it's movies or television or music. And they have these ideas of what the U.S. is about. But until you see it firsthand and experience it, you know, you don't really know too much. So... 
um, you know, to me, in, in interviewing Nessie, and this is the reason why I included it, you know, high up at the start of my story, um, it really it did seem that, you know, authentic and, and something that he was really interested in doing. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I thought it kind of made him uh, Interesting. very human, like a lot of other people his age who haven't spent much time in the U.S. and have always wanted to spend more time here. I do think it's absolutely amazing that he went to Barcelona at age 13, trained there, and has played there ever since. Like, I know 60 Minutes, I think, or 60 Minutes Sports, one of the two, did a story on the model they have there. And I just watched a documentary on Netflix about, I think it's called Class of 92. Uh, It's about the six guys who came up together in Manchester United and won the triple in 99 for them. Yeah. Uh, And just, like, the idea of this would be... People would be like if there was a Yankees school essentially where like 13 year old baseball stars became Yankees and like worked their way up to the main team. I think we would just adore that. And it's it's too bad it will never happen. But it's such an amazing thing that they found this kid uh, in a different part of the world and brought him over at 13 with this kind of napkin thing. And he's the biggest star in the world now. It's just such an amazing thing to me. Yeah, I did a big story for Sports Illustrated a couple of years ago on FC Barcelona, and that was a big part of it, uh, was their youth academy, which is called La Masia. And just like you said, how different it is compared to what we're used to with U.S. professional sports, where you have kids you know, or players on the current Barcelona team who've known each other since since they were 13 years old, you know, uh, you know, Gerard Piquet is teammates of Messi now for FC Barcelona, but they were literally teammates together at age 13 for Barcelona's youth ranks. And the relationship that develops because of that is a very, on a completely different level, I guess, than than any sort of relationship we're used to seeing of, of professional athletes in the U.S. So... Uh, I think it is a really neat thing uh, to see and, and see how those guys interact with each other. Yeah, and I thought that documentary on the on the, the Manchester United guys really gave a good good idea of what it's like too to kind of grow up together and to make this the team. And and uh, that one last thing about Messi, and we'll finish real quickly at Euro because we're out of time. Uh, what did you What did you learn this time about Messi that maybe you didn't know about him as much? So obviously the star that he is, yeah, maybe it's the first time you did a cover story for SI, but it's obviously not the first time you've crossed paths with the guy. What did you learn this time, or what did you take away this time that, that you didn't before? Well, it was the first time I'd ever sat down with him for an extended interview. I, I'd never done a one-on-one interview with Matthew before. Um, and so you hear stories, you read things. Basically... I was kind of given the impression heading into it that he would not be a very good interview, that he would, um, you know, just be very reticent, very sort of hesitant to say much of anything and and very shy. And I thought that was overblown, you know. Uh, I thought we had a nice conversation. Uh, He was very normal acting. Um, You know, he he never shut down or anything. and, And... he was willing to tell his story. So uh, for me, it was a nice 
a nice thing to experience. It's always interesting for me when you go into an interview with an athlete that you've never met before and suddenly you're, you know, you're trying to do an interview that is revealing and interesting and obviously you hope it goes well. Uh, and, and this one did, they do tend to go well if you prepare well and, um, and you ask, you know, good questions and, and, you know, and you're engaged. So, um, you know, I had an interview a few years ago for a cover story with Mario Balotelli, which was a similar type deal. I'd never met the guy before, and suddenly you're talking for 40, 45 minutes, right. and you hope you get the best interview possible, but you aren't sure heading into it how how it will work. And, and this one did work well with Messi, and, you know, I look forward, hopefully, to doing more of those with him in the future. You know, he did. He came off as very likable. I know I was maybe picking on him a little in the beginning, but... He came off as very likable, and it made me think that maybe – I always think about this when the, the NHL playoffs start. Like, who do I hope is the guy who can finally lift the Stanley Cup in June? And maybe mm-hmm. you know, maybe a lot of people had that thought with Joe Thornton going into this playoffs, and maybe there's a chance at that. And Ovechkin certainly as well. He's a guy who I, I really would love to see uh, win a huge tournament for Argentina uh, just because he's had so much success with Barcelona, but – you know, like he said over and over in that piece or in the video, you know, it's been 20 plus years since at the senior level Argentina's won a tournament. And I know they were so close, uh, you know, losing an extra time to Germany in the World Cup last time, but I definitely am rooting for him. Uh, the sports guys are here with Grant Wall. Uh, he's at Twitter. He's at Grant Wall, an unbelievable following there. You can follow him, G R A N T W A H L. And the current issue of Sports Illustrated. Uh, features this cover story uh, of uh, with Lionel Messi and uh, also another story that's the beginning of a series uh, on uh, soccer and different uh, players. And this starts with the striker uh, and talks with a Mexican player about being a striker. Uh, very interesting there as well. And, of course, uh, he's with Fox Sports. You can find him there. Real quickly, uh, the Euro was also this summer. And, um, you know, I'm a huge Italian soccer fan because my first exposure to it really was uh, the World Cup in 94, and I watched the whole tournament with uh, my great-grandmother who was um, could barely speak English, was a you know an Italian, and held her hand and cried with her when Roberto Baggio kicked the ball over the net and thought about her so much in 2006. Uh, you know, the Grasso goal or the... Uh, the penalty kick against Australia. Just thought about her so much that tournament, and um, so I always will cheer for Italy first, even though it will frustrate my f- friends uh, in the United States. But uh, you mentioned that article about Balotelli, which I read with so much anticipation and excitement a few years ago, and I wonder what has happened to the guy because he's not even on the the team uh, for Italy at the Euro, despite essentially being the biggest star in the tournament just about last time. Uh, And, you know, he was the one, I mean, he scored the big goal against England in the last World Cup. And then obviously in the, in the game where uh, they they lost uh, when uh, Suarez bit the guy and uh, uh, he didn't even play in the second half. He had had the card. I don't know. They were worried maybe about him being sent off. And there was some talk of him maybe getting mouthy in the locker room. But what what has happened to this guy's career? We needed this star. What happened? Well, it's it's sad to me. I mean, 
you know, Mario Balotelli's still out there. Uh, he played this past season with AC Milan um, on loan from Liverpool, which still owns his contract. Uh, not a not a great season uh, for Balotelli or AC Milan, uh, and it's it is sad to me because you know, he scored two big goals to beat Germany and surprise everyone yeah. in the semifinals of the last Euro, and um, yeah, was obviously involved as you said in the 2014 World Cup, but basically ever since that World Cup, Balotelli has really struggled at club level and has not found a home anywhere, and I don't think it's uh, to the point yet where you can write him off, but uh, you know he needs to turn his career around and become a, a top player again because he certainly has the talent to do it, but the consistency just has not been there the last couple of years at club level. Um, you know, and you look ahead to this tournament, uh, this this Euro, and uh, Italy tends to to do pretty well uh, in the Euro as opposed to recent, as you know, recently in the World Cup they haven't done very well. Right. Yeah, two straight um, group outs in World Cup. But, um, you know, uh, they got to the final last time, lost to Spain, and uh, they're in a tough group this time around. Uh, Belgium. But, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a big Euro this time. There's 24 teams. There's a lot more games. Uh, they're all going to be on ESPN, and uh, I'm looking forward to watching that during the day and the Copa America at night. Yeah, and they're going to have to win, I guess, similar to the way they won in 2006, basically just not giving up any goals. Because uh, it doesn't seem like they have the guys to score them, and it's interesting that you know it's Buffon will be in net, but Pirlo will not be there because I guess they're mad because he plays in the MLS, uh, which is something you'll have to explain to me another time. Uh, yeah. But uh, why don't you just end with maybe a prediction of who wins these two big tournaments this summer? Well, you know, with France hosting this Euro 2016 and a really, really promising young group a young generation of French players. I'm predicting France will win the tournament on home soil. Okay. Um, you know, Paul Pogba is their sort of young superstar, and I, I think this is going to be the tournament that he really makes his mark. You know, he was good in the World Cup in 2014, but I think this will be his tournament. And you look all around uh, the French roster, and there's so much talent, young talent everywhere. Um, you know, so many guys to be excited about, um, you know, not just Pogba, but guys like Antoine Griezmann, uh, you know, guys like Kingsley Coman, you know, players we've been seeing play for the top clubs in the world at club level, but maybe haven't made a huge mark with the French national team yet. But uh, I think that's what's going to happen here. And, you know, the, the great thing about the year is there's so much depth of, of talent. Every team has skill. And uh, I think we'll see that over on our televisions over the next few weeks. Yeah, crazy things happen. Like Greece won one year out of nowhere, right? So it's a crazy uh, tournament. Yeah, I mean, Greece won back in 2004 in a tremendous upset. Um, You know, Spain isn't getting talked about probably as much as it should be. It's the two-time defending champion of this tournament. Yeah. And certainly capable of winning it. But just because they had a bad World Cup in 2014, everyone's kind of writing them off. Right, and who wins the Copa? You know, I'm predicting Argentina is finally going to win its first major trophy since '93. Yeah. Um, I've got Argentina beating Mexico in the final, but uh, I think there's a few teams that are capable of winning it. Mexico is one of them. Uh, you know, Brazil, Uruguay, uh, definitely Argentina, which has just a stacked roster that they're bringing. Uh, and I think the U.S. is capable of making a really deep run. I don't, I don't see the U.S. winning the tournament, but. Uh, 
I certainly do see the U.S. sticking around for a while. Again, you can find Grant on Twitter. He's at uh, just his name, Grant Wall, there. And uh, the cover story with Lionel Messi is definitely worth your time. And I would even suggest uh, first uh, buying the magazine and reading it there. But then if you search SI long-form Messi article, it's really put together really well there because you can see the video that Grant mentioned that he did uh, with SI Films, which is about 17 minutes. And then it also has some videos of some different goals that uh, Messi mentions throughout the interview. And uh it's definitely a worthwhile way to check it out there. Anything else you wanted to mention plug-wise? No, just uh, really looking forward to having so much soccer on U.S. television with the Copa America on Fox and the Euro on ESPN. We've never seen this much in the way of hours. There's over 330 hours of soccer coverage of these two tournaments between June 3rd and July 10th. It's a perfect time of year for it. I mean, with you know, baseball season is still you know, not even to the all-star break and the NHL and the NBA will be over. And what a better thing to do than watch these games. And like you said, they're going to kind of stretch through the uniquely through the course of the day with one being in Europe and one being here. So I'm looking forward to it. I think we're going to get to a point where once it's over, we're going to go through serious withdrawal. So that's a sign that these events, big soccer events are getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And you know, the the greatest thing, and I I know I root for Italy first, I, I admitted that and I, I've admitted it always, but it's an amazing thing when we're all on the same team. You know, when it when it gets right. to one of these tournaments like last year uh, with the women, and you go on Twitter and everyone is tweeting together, like this amazing outpouring of support for our country, which is difficult here because we get so crazy political, especially in this year, 2016, to create crazy uh, political campaigns. Soccer does an amazing job. Uh, maybe as well as any sport and kind of uniting us and kind of uh, all kind of rooting for the same thing. And it really, it's really exciting. So I do look forward, look forward to it quite a bit. Nice. Well, thanks for having me on. Let's yeah, do it again. Thank you sometime. so much. Thanks, Grant. All right. I want to thank Grant Wall for being on the podcast today. It's always nice to talk soccer. Don, will you be watching? the Copa, or the Euro this year? You know what? It's one of those things that, kind of like the Olympics, if I go home and I'm not watching anything else, like that'll be on. Like I saw that, I think the first game is tomorrow night at 9.30 or 7, something like that, some prime prime time. There's nothing else going on on a Friday, you know? I might watch it if I remember. All right, book club update today. The book club book of the month currently is Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, What Pop Music Rivalries Reveal About the Meaning of Life by Stephen Hyden. Stephen Hyden, of course, has been on this podcast before when he was a music critic for Grantland and was also on the podcast recently to promote his podcast, Cellar Rock, I think it's called. Um, And he's a nice dude, and we chat with him a lot. And uh, I'm excited to have him on. The, The concept of the book, essentially, I think I mentioned this last week, is music rivalries... And then I've discovered that, okay, so like one chapter was Kanye West versus Taylor Swift, right? And the book is, yes, the chapter yes is about those two, but it's an essay. Each chapter is sort of like a 15-page essay that kind of could stand alone outside of the book. The book is only a chapter of, is only a series of chapters because you decided it was. This could have been 15 magazine articles and 15 <laughs> right, different right. magazines or whatever. 
Uh, and then there's some other thing in there from him about something. And the last chapter I read was Prince versus Michael Jackson, which was written before Prince's dad. And I'm interested to talk to him about how the chapter might have been different if he would have written sure, it yeah. after Prince was dead. So I don't know what the answer of that is for sure. But Stephen Hyden, your favorite band is killing me. What pop music rivalries reveal about the meaning of life? Oh, I also saw on Twitter that uh, Stephen was on this podcast. Uh, and it's called, I believe it's called The Greatest Albums of All Time. And he was the guest on the episode, The Great Albums. TheGreatAlbums.com is where you go. And the current episode of The Great Albums is Vitology. Okay. And Stephen Hyden was the guest. And I thought, oh, this could be cool. Sure. I might want to hear this. And I listened for three minutes and realized I'm way too sensitive and really could care less (laughs) what these three guys think of Vitology. And I shut it off. Yeah. Yeah. So... Like they got into this thing about David Bruzy and how he's such a great drummer, but guns and sports cars got him fired from the band. And we've had we had a little I bit of that know. talk on the way back from one of the Toronto shows, and I think we both came to the conclusion that just we don't know drummers enough. Like we don't know the intricacy of drummers to say definitively that he was better than Matt Cameron or irons or whatever i i don't know i just don't know matt cameron played on the demo that eddie vetter recorded the first three pearl jam songs on uh and they've said several times that they would watch matt cameron play while watching soundgarden shows and talk about how great he was and matt cameron was the drummer on top of the dog and if matt cameron ever had a chance to be the pearl jam drummer whether keith moon was the drummer at the time (laughs) i think he was going to be it. Yeah. So, I don't know. All right. Your favorite band is killing me. What pop music rivalers reveal about the meaning of life by Stephen Hyden. We're going to take a break and come back and do something a little bit different. We're going to talk with Catherine Perlman about sports parents and parenting. And it's different. So, if you're not into it, you can skip ahead to one last thing. Uh, or you can just catch us next week. I don't know. Uh, but I'd give it a chance. It's it's pretty cool. It's different. So let's give it a try. Our next guest is originally from New York, New York, and is a graduate of Bucknell. She has a doctorate in social welfare and is the founder of The Family Coach. She is an expert on parenting, has appeared on Today Show, and is a co-host of a podcast with her sports writer husband called The Sports Parent. She's making her debut on The Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Dr. Catherine Perlman. How are you today, Catherine? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's very exciting to, uh, to have the spouse of a former guest. It's a first. I like being a first. Yes. So I was interested in just kind of talking to you because, well, one, you have this new podcast and I wanted to check it out and I wanted to talk to you about that. And I'm going to be a parent for the first time. And I mean, it's like, well, you could talk to an expert for a few minutes and and uh, get some get some some, you know, some sly advice there. So some free parenting advice, free parenting advice. And uh, (laughs) 
I figured, hey, it's a win-win. They get free plugs. They get free advice. But I, I was thinking about it, and I realized that the one thing that I noticed about life at this point where it's – I mean, I think my wife is like 38 weeks pregnant, so it's like right about there, really close – is that I really have no idea what advice I need yet. You know what I mean? There's really right. nothing that I am uh, good or bad at. Or, um, you know, uh, one thing I think we all need as a society is, and I noticed this over the years, is that we need to, the way we common folk address people who are about to be parents needs to change because all anything anyone says to us is about the sleeping thing and and these really dumb ideas like you better get your sleep now like as if we could get 27 hours sleep today and bank some of it or something it's just it's kind of like it's disappointing from some people because it's like dude come on you're a great dad of a daughter and i'm going to be a dad of a daughter it just feels like you could offer more than that but why i almost feel like it's a little bit of hazing it's it's counterproductive because it's just going to make you freak out. And like you said, there's nothing you can – you can't get enough sleep now that's going to cover you. No. It, it, what would be better if they said is it's hard, you're going to be tired, but you can do it. I mean that's the truth. Yeah, and, and I mean that's just kind of always – it's like, okay, well, like, I don't know, the, those weeks during finals or something where I didn't sleep, like, I don't know. It wasn't that big of a deal. Like, you kind of figured it out and slept unconventionally and – Right. And just as it seems to work out, it's like I, I I keep thinking in my head like, well, if that's the worst thing that could ever happen, like, well, that'll be a blessing. Like if our biggest right. anxiety as parents is that we didn't sleep so well the first few months of her life, like I feel like that would be that would be that's really a price good. to pay. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, it yeah. just I just feel like these other parents are being a little little coy or disingenuous or just falling into an everyday an everyday cliche. Like almost like we have these like social uh, scripts that we go through in our life. Like, uh, hey, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing good. You know, like these things that we just say the same thing all the time. And I feel like there's one for new parents, and it's uh, oh, you oh, get your sleep now. Yeah, congratulations <laughs> on the kid, and oh man, you better get ready to sleep, and uh, uh, or or like oh, it's gonna change your life, like those kinds of things. So I don't know. I'm bored with that. I'm done with that. I'm ready for that to be over. Uh- I think that's good. Then you won't feel that you need to listen to those people. Because, I mean, the truth of the matter is, it's just like any tough time. You get through it. You go day by day. You know, you take naps. You you get parents and grandparents and neighbors to come hold the baby so you can take, you know, 45-minute nap every now and then. Or you're just exhausted and it passes. You know, like you said, you had finals. You, you managed to still graduate, I presume. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it just goes. But I, don't, I, I think that you're right that you don't know what you don't know yet in terms of being a parent, but it sounds like you know enough not to listen to these people who are trying to make you nervous. Yeah, it feels like they are doing that. They're trying to make us nervous. Why do they do that? I don't know. Maybe uh, you need new friends. <laughs> this is interesting that we were going to have you on because it seems like the whole world has stopped to question two specific parents uh, right now, one of which wasn't even there. And I was just wondering what your take is on the Cincinnati Zoo and the parents who... It's taken a lot of heat for letting her young kid, I guess, fall into the enclosure or whatever. You know what? I feel so badly for this family. I think, number one, who we should be looking at is the zoo. I mean, quite frankly, it should never be possible for a child to climb or fall 
or tumble into a place where there's a 400-pound gorilla. Like, that should just not be possible. There should be, you know, it's great. We want to be one with the animals, but there needs to be safety precautions. So to me, they're the ones that are really at fault here. And I also think if parents are honest with themselves, every single parent has had at least one moment where they look the other way for one second, their kid rolled off the bed, they hit their head, they fell in the pool. I mean, parents have to be honest with themselves. It's a hard job, and every now and then someone gets distracted, and 99% of the time nothing terrible happens, right? There's no gorilla involved, or the child doesn't drown. But you know what? Sometimes it does, and it was just as much of an accident and a one-second, you know, forget forgetting what was happening as much as anything else, it's just that their, their incident turned out badly. So um, I feel that it's just a, a quick way to blame these parents, but the parents really aren't to blame. The zoo is to blame, and parents should be a little more sympathetic. And if they're honest with their own parenting, they would see they, they've, had, they've had their own parenting fails. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, we're ang- the people are angry that the gorilla had to be put down, and, and I get that. I, I feel bad for the gorilla, too. Um, but... You know, it's like, I don't know. It's amazing how people are so in this, uh, especially in this day of being able to kind of just always have our opinions public. uh, People are so eager to just kind of, I don't know, judge these people. And um, I don't know. I didn't didn't even know what to say. I mean, I think if the animal wasn't put down, I think there would have been judgment, but it wouldn't have been as bad. But I think because the animal had to die it really brings out a lot of sadness and we can't just let that be. We have to blame somebody and we blame, we blame this, this parent, but I, I feel awful for her and for the zoo, but hopefully the zoo will learn something and, um, you know, that's all you can do. Yeah. I, I, I was interested in the podcast. The sports parent is the name of it. You can find it on iTunes. And I was wondering, um, let's talk about the origin of it. How'd you get the idea? Why did you want to do it? Um, How'd you decide on the closet as a studio? Just kind of like go into uh, this idea of the podcast and and because uh, it, it is seem seems like you might have found a unique niche that you guys can settle into. But why don't you go and talk about the origin of it? So my husband's Jeff Roman. He's a sports writer, and I'm a family coach. And we talk a lot about sports and parenting, just casually at the dinner table in the car. We our kids play sports, so we're observers. And, um, you know, it's just something that over time it was, we were realizing, you know what, there's a lot to talk about, about youth sports and parenting. There's just so much there every day in the news, every day on Facebook. You know, you're always seeing some crazy incident or even just a quandary. I write a Dear Family Coach column, and I get a lot of questions about sports. So it just kind of came to me, and Jeff and I were looking to do something together and um, so he just somehow one day just popped in my head, like, we should do the Sports Parent Podcast. Like, that's it. That's what we should do. Um, and we both jumped on board and said, let's do this. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a really interesting topic because a lot like parenting, I guess, in general, there's there's not always a right answer to some of the things that we encounter. I've I grew up in a hockey family. I played hockey. My brothers played hockey. I've uh Raft hockey. I've worked at a pro shop and a nice hockey rink. Um, I've worked hockey schools when I was in college. Uh, during the summer, I would travel with a hockey school and work in kind of <laughs> like uh, 
this guy found a great business. He just he took his school to newer hockey markets like um, like in Maryland or Virginia, where the idea of having coaches that played at the college level was a huge, huge deal. And he could just he, he found a great business, and I, I did that. And I would see hockey parents, and I've seen them from all different levels. And then uh, my youngest brother, he played at a really, really high level and played in the USHL and then played D1 at Yale. And it was interesting as to watch the parents as well as, as he got better because I was a little bit older. You know, I was 11 years older than him. It was interesting to watch the parents as he got higher, how parents changed, how the relationships between parents changed. Um, and it was just really interesting to me um, because it it is uh, it's crazy. It's it is crazy. I think you know. There's. I'm sure you've heard about helicopter parenting. It's this concept where parents are hovering constantly, micromanaging their children. I mean, kids are being raised very differently than I was raised or generations ago was raised. I mean, we we did a lot more free play. My parents were not involved in every sporting activity or every decision that was made. Um, they didn't study with me. They didn't talk to my teachers on a daily or weekly basis. You know, it's just, it's very different. And I think the culture of this helicopter parenting has really permeated these sports. And mm. parents are obsessed with their kids' sports lives. And I think a lot of times they say, you know, it's well, we want we want them to get a scholarship. You know, we want them to get a scholarship. But I just think that's almost like BS. You know, I just think that's it's like what we can say to justify our obsessiveness. But I really think it's a lot to do with a parent's missed opportunity, a parent's ego. You know, when your kid scores the winning goal and everybody high fives you, it feels great. You know, but it's not really worth all of the, um, everything that's lost by everything we have to put into the youth sports. So, I mean, even when our kids were, you know, three, I remember someone saying, are you signing your son up for soccer? Like, I'm not paying $300 so my son can play soccer. He's three. Like, let's go to the park and let's get a soccer ball. And that's what we ended up doing. A bunch of neighbors got together when we played soccer on Sundays, and it was informal, but it, it was that it was that long ago that I was thinking, this is crazy. Why would a three-year-old need a soccer class? You know, mm-hmm. like why does he have to soc- Why does he have to start his soccer life now? Um, and it's just continued. I see. You know, my son is nine now, and kids are already specializing. You know, you need to play baseball, and you need to play baseball all year round if you want to make the team by ten. You know, my son is probably going to be off the team in the next year or so, only because he wants to play three sports and not one. And there's just so many things, and I don't even mean just you know, crazy parents on the sidelines. I just think the whole way the system is set up is it's got a lot of a lot of issues going on. Yeah, it was really interesting because my youngest brother definitely started hockey the youngest, but the reason he started the youngest was because when he was four, um, I was 15 and in high school and playing high school hockey, and my dad was one of the coaches. So from that youngest age, he was in the locker room. He would sit right. next to me before games with his mini stick. He was uh, fascinated by the sport at a really, really young age, and he wanted to, he wanted to go and skate. And I remember the first time he went, and it was like one of these things of watching him, like, well, what, what will he do? He does he, you know, you don't know if he knows how to skate. And he went out there with a little like push thing, and uh-huh. and then he kind of went away from that to the boards, and then he was just skating around the rink like it happened in two minutes. 
You know, like I remember he asked me one time, like with a lot of like who taught you how to skate? And I was like, well, no one did. You just went out and you already knew how, you know, okay. and he was very young, uh, you know, very young. Um, but then it was interesting because, you know, I've thought so much about this over the years. Like you mentioned how parents uh, want their kids to get a scholarship. And I get it because when Anthony got his first uh, letter back from, yeah, like his first financial award for that first semester and you like you see it in writing. Mm-hmm. it takes your breath away kind of, you know, mm-hmm. and like the appeal of that is, and like, and you know, it, and he was at Yale, like, I mean, he's smart, but he's not Yale smart. Right. Like, I don't right. think. I mean, that. he I got an amazing opportunity yeah, yeah. because of his skating. And I do hear you that because he start. I mean, he started young. I think it's a little bit of a different circumstance. I mean, I'm not a soccer star. I'm not from a soccer family. You know, there was no reason to really start formal paid lessons at such a young age. It was just an example. Right, yeah, I no, do no. Hear- I wasn't shitting on that or anything, by the way. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I do think the opportunity to get a scholarship is really game-changing for a lot of families. But I wonder sometimes how much money families are spending on yeah. the journey I for those too. 18 years. Yeah. And if they save that money, some of it, they would be able to send their kids to college. Not everyone, of course, and I think to be able to go to Yale or wherever, it's an amazing opportunity. But the vast majority of kids that are in youth sports right now, they're not getting a college scholarship. Yeah, people don't realize how hard it is. They don't. You know, because you start off, like you start off, let's say at six was maybe the first like triple A, which is the highest level of travel hockey. You Mm -hmm. know, and there's 20 kids who are pretty close about the same good maybe you know a few are a little better but they're about the same and then a few drop off you know and you get to the next year and maybe a few new kids have integrated in and drop off and in the end he my brother played with hundreds of kids and maybe five of them played in college in the end you know like and sometimes you wonder like i know like my, my family we've always talked about how Maybe for our own egos, we've said, you know, like, oh, well, it took all of us. It took all of our contributions. You know, it took my parents made like financial sacrifices mm-hmm. and um, time sacrifices. And uh, my my middle brother, especially, definitely maybe made personal sacrifices where maybe things in his life, maybe he could have done more. Maybe, um, you know, in my life, as I got older, I definitely drove my brother to classes and as the person in the family who had played competitive hockey uh recently i definitely was a mentor to him about the game and was able to like when i worked the hockey school like hey come with me this week or whatever you know and i think we've all but luckily just kind of the makeup of our family and our love of the game like nobody ever disliked their role luck and it was a lucky thing because I don't know if any of us would have disliked it if it would have changed. Like, we were lucky. We all loved it. And I would remember, like, going to, like, when my brother was in prep school, there was a, he had a Thanksgiving tournament in Pittsburgh. And I took my brother because my parents, I think, had something with my other brother, to be honest. And it was just me and him all weekend. And it's a weekend, obviously, I'll never forget. But I just remember all the other parents' reaction to it. Like, it's just you, like, 
oh my god my other son would never want to do that or like Mm -hmm. and i just like was thinking about it and like well why did i want to i don't know it was just a lucky thing everyone my family actually bonded around my brother's success Mm -hmm. in hockey Mm -hmm. we enjoyed traveling together to the different cities and watching the games and being with the other families and meeting the other kids but it's not for everyone we just kind of i feel like got lucky well, it was definitely like a family culture for you guys, and also, you know, maybe where you lived, where you grew up, it was part of the culture. I, I laugh about hockey because hockey is becoming more um, more prevalent in places that I, I didn't think it really was, and I see a lot of parents waking up at like 5.30 in the morning, going to the freezing cold ice rink, and I think to myself, I am so psyched my kids don't want to play hockey, right. because that's not my lifestyle, you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. I, that, that would be very hard for me. Um, whereas, you know, other people might not like the choices that we're making. I think that's one of the beauties of parenting is that you have to follow what works for your family. You know, uh, we made a move uh, two years ago, and when we first moved to the first semester, our kids did no after-school activities because we really just wanted to get settled, and we didn't even know what to sign them up for. It was blissful. It was, we spent, we had so much family time. We had dinner together every night. And it was really relaxing. So you fast forward to now, both my kids play sports, and it's wonderful. I really enjoy it for them for a multitude of reasons. They really enjoy it. But Monday through Thursday, somebody's got practice or a game from, you know, 6.30 to 7.30 or 8. That There goes our family time. There goes our healthy dinner time. You know, it really it adds a lot of challenges. And then you add on the weekends – They have games. Well, one parent is going to one person's game. My son plays a different sport than my daughter, so the other parent is going with him to his game. It really divides things up in a way that, you know, in my perfect world, we would have more quality family together all together, like you were saying, going to your younger brother's games. And maybe the way your kids, you know, you guys were all spaced out maybe kind of helps some of that. But I think it's, it's hard. My kids aren't playing at some elite level. They're young and just playing in rec leagues and already it's many times a week and it's at night you know it's not at three fifteen after school or 4 it's six thirty. so you know it adds extra challenges yeah and you guys are talking on the on the podcast about the coach who <laughs> jeff was real annoyed about maybe some of the some of his uh resume was maybe embellished his bragging yeah, yeah. His bragging and uh and then his son was playing on multiple teams i actually tweeted you that that reminded me of Pat Kane because that's what Pat Kane did. You know, like Pat Kane, when he was a youngster in Buffalo, New York, I was working at the hockey rink in the time, at the time. And I remember all the time you would see him walking in for the game or practice already dressed from whatever game or practice he had come from. And I right. always remember thinking it was just, man, it must be such a weird life to be on these three teams. And obviously – I don't know if three was the exact number. He was on multiple teams all the time. Right. Uh, but it just seems so weird to me. Like, uh, um, he'd obviously have conflicts. He'd have to make decisions about, you know, tournaments. Which one do you go? And, and you know, but it worked for him, obviously, to a very extreme level. Um, but, but how could that but, work for the team? You know what yeah, I'm saying? Like, no, I don't know There's how. no way with scheduling you well, could make all three teams' practices and, and all of the no, games. And to me, that's, that's, that's almost like unethical. You, you say you're going to be on this team. You practice with the team. You play with the team. If you can't make all of the 
requirements, and of course I'm not talking about missing a game here or there, but I just think um, I, I wonder what message it sends to that kid, that he's kind of more important than the team, yep. you know? Mm-hmm. And exactly I wonder how, how that's going to play out later, what kind of player he's going to be. Right. Well, it turned out he was a world-class player. I just wonder if it affected the kind of human he was because there's definitely some That's debate. what I mean. Exactly. Yeah, there's You're definitely right. some debate on whether or not he is that. Um, well, you know, I, I think I, about Barry Bonds or, you know, some other athletes that are known to be not such great, nice guys. And I think, you know, when you're six, seven, eight, nine and you're the best one on the team, and you play on multiple teams, and everybody tells you you're the best, you win all the awards, even the nicest kid over time is going to have a little bit of a big head. They're going to get a lot of extra benefits like skipping things or going to the front of the line. And I think over time that really does mess with someone's personality, you know, and the ability to see yourself as a regular human being and, yes, you might be this elite athlete, and that's amazing, and you ha- it gets to be your career, and that's great. But I do think it takes a toll on the kind of person you're going to be. Yeah, and, you know, it's an interesting thing. I know I reference my brother a lot, and people will make fun of me because he comes up on the podcast a lot, and that's okay. But that's the, <laughs> only, it's the only experience I have to relate to this conversation. But, um, you know, growing up, he was kind of what you described, always basically the best or the best one or two or three. You know, in hockey, if you have – there's five guys out at once. I mean, if you are one of the best five, you're the best, basically. Um, and the one thing I always was proudest of him about was he was always the 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 best locker room guy, too. The nicest kid, the most mm-hmm. white kid, you know. And he was way better at all that than me. I wasn't nearly as good. I was, I've never been as likable as him or um, I've tried to get better because of him, I think that's one thing he's taught me as the younger brother because he's always just been better at that stuff and level-headed. But the one thing I always worried for him was he's always been this one thing and what is it going to happen when that ends? And when he was a a senior at Yale, he broke his leg in November. So like this kid who's been a hockey star of relative fantastic health was able to get himself all the way to this point, but then – right before the year where he was really supposed to be able to showcase himself to build a career beyond college and hockey, he kind of sort of lost hockey. And I was really proud of him. He worked very, very hard, and he was able to get back and finish his career at Yale in his jersey. But I was at his what he thought was his last game. They actually, it's a little confusing because they actually ended up kind of backing into the NCAA tournament. But they mm-hmm. lost a playoff game in overtime, double overtime to Harvard at Yale. And it was the second game that he had played back since since being gone yeah and the they lost the first game of the playoffs they didn't let him play then he came back it was a big deal big lift he came and played the second game they won and they lost the third game double overtime so i remember waiting for him kind of thinking like okay what are you going to say to him what you know and he had lost state championships before uh, a lot of near misses. He was really a second-place kid before he won his national championship at Yale. But the thing that threw all of us up is that what we didn't expect was the Anthony that came out that time because he didn't come out the grounded, level-headed kid. He was crying and upset, and he kept saying, well, now what do I do? Yeah. You know, what is my life now? Like It almost like it just hit him walking out of the locker room or something, and it was really hard, um, you know... I mean, my defenses were just like, well, look at you're not out. You could still get in. And I mean, 
Luckily, they did, so I looked smart, maybe. Because they were like a 4% chance at that point to get in. And right. So, somehow they did. And he got to play another game, but, you know, now what? Well, that's, I think, what people lose track of, I think, in general, sports parents, because it's only going to get you no far no matter what, even if you're Pat Kane. Like, hockey's only going to get Pat Kane so far no matter what. Right, and I, right. You have a long life to live right. without that. And I think that's what really gets lost touch of. And luckily, you know, Anthony went on five official visits. He went to BC, Michigan State, Yale, Notre Dame, and New Mexico, Omaha, something like that. RPI, I forgot. So they were one of them. And just by, I guess, luck, picking Yale really did set him up best for after hockey. Um, But I don't think parents think about that enough because in the end, it's only going to get you so far no matter what. Even if well, it's I Yale think, or the NHL, like Packing or whatever. <laughs> right, right. I mean, of course, there are some people who are going to go to, you know, professional sports, and eventually that will end. But I think a lot about how I played sports all my life. I was an average athlete. I'm five feet tall. I just had fun. You know, I yep. really enjoyed it, and I still love to play sports. I, I play tennis. I, you know, join uh, a beach volleyball game if it's, you know, if I walk past it. And um, I'll, I'm willing to pick up any sport, you know, paddle boarding I recently started and just whatever. I enjoy the idea of staying fit through sport and playing with other people and being part of a team. And what bothers me sometimes is there's this single focus on driving skills better and better and better, being on a better team and having, you know, better chances at scholarship and, and all of this that the joy of sport sometimes disappears and it doesn't always come back. You know, I want my kids to be lifelong athletes, whatever, however we define athlete, you know. I want them to enjoy sport. I want them to get out there and play. And something they can do with their friends, they can do with their kids, they can do with their grandparents. It's just something, it's a way of life. And I think a lot of kids are dropping out of sports even before they get to high school, let alone college. And um, they lose that joy. They lose that way of life. And, you know, maybe that has something to do with the fact that we're becoming an obese society. Maybe if we back off on trying to push kids to this elite level, they might enjoy sports more and play for their whole lives. I mean, I, I'm making a big stretch there, but you never know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that, the you know, the main thing people have to be realistic about is just how hard it is to even get to whatever the next level is. Like, it gets harder every year. Um, to be elite, whatever that means, and whatever sport you play, you know it's harder to be an elite varsity basketball player than it is to be an elite JV basketball player. You know, it just it gets harder every year, and um, you know, I just I don't think people realize how tough it is. And uh, you know, well, I also think there's an opportunity cost. So when you're spending all your time on this one sport, you're not playing music, you're not reading, you're not riding your bike with friends in the driveway and, and building up a different kind of social skill. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things you're not doing. And um, I wonder what kind of loss there is because of that. You know, you have this one thing, you have sports. But I think it's important that we work harder to keep kids more well-rounded just so they can be more well-rounded citizens too. Yeah, and you guys are talking about that on one of the early podcasts too, about the idea of Kids don't play as many sports, and I kind of have an outside theory on that, especially more elite players. My brother would play other sports, 
Like I played baseball and hockey uh, my whole way up. Um, that was pretty much the two I played. And he would play baseball a little bit or play basketball or play lacrosse or whatever. And the problem for him was he wasn't the best at it. He would be okay. He, you know, He's a great athlete, so he'd be good enough. But I think it was weird for him, and I noticed this other teammates he had that would play other sports too. They're so used to being the best at their main sport that like yeah. being average at another one is was a really a huge turnoff for them. And I yeah. I never thought of it until I kind of lived it. And I and I, yeah. I think that's an overlooked reason why kids don't play as many sports, especially elite ones. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. But again, the vast majority of kids playing are not your brother. They're not they're not you know, yeah. they don't have the skills or the natural athleticism or ability necessarily, um, and and we should focus more on letting them have fun and building their their um, their skills, of course. But I don't know. I remember when I started this podcast, I had like a whole list of things I wanted to do when starting it. What are some of those things on your list? Like, where do you want to see the sports parent evolve? I know you've had guests, um, athletes, or parents, uh, whatever. Like, what what are some other things you want to do with – how do you see the, the podcast evolving? And what is the best sports parent podcast at episode 50 going to be like? You know what? I want the sports parent to be part of the conversation. You know, I want us to address things that are going on on the field and in the news um, and in society and to be able to kind of work through some of those things. I mean, Jeff and I don't always agree. And that's one of the things that's nice about the podcast is we can kind of hammer it out. We don't have to come to a conclusion. We can work through those things together. And then we have to raise our kids. So we're going to have to come to some conclusions just as a family. So I just want it to be part of our conversation. I want it to be part of other people's conversation. I want them to listen to it and think, you know what, that's, I never thought of that. I never thought of that one small thing and that's going to change something the way that I do. Or I'm going to talk to my league about this particular rule and, or my town or whatever it may be. And, and maybe we can affect change. You know, I don't know. I, I, I hope that enough people listen and get some ideas and become part of the conversation. And then maybe we make some changes. The podcast is called The Sports Parent. You can find it on iTunes, of course. And you can get more information on the blogs of the hosts. Uh, com or Catherine's blog, which is, or really her website's not really a blog. I wouldn't be calling it the right thing. But you can go to www.thefamilycoach.com for more information about Catherine there. And you can follow her on Twitter. She's at The Family Coach there. You do have to be careful that, because I think you're probably 2 and 0 on the one minute debate things. If it gets, yeah. you know, if it gets to like 10 and 0, it's going to drive a wedge. You know, Jeff's going to start to get. <laughs> But, I mean, he has to be more realistic. He doesn't actually think Cole and Oates are better than Elton John, right? I mean, come on. He does. Well, this week we did Star Wars and Star Trek, so we'll have to listen and see. Maybe he beat me on this one. Yeah, I have no idea about either of them, so you probably, it'll be a push in my so mind. So I won? So I won? Yeah, we'll just give it to you because, I mean. <laughs> but, yeah, you have to be careful because he's going to get starting to start getting mad if you keep whooping him on that like that. But, you may be. But he needs to bring more realistic arguments. I mean, that was a weak one. So what makes uh, what makes you like, OK, here, let's end on this. Let me ask you this. Like, at what point did you feel comfortable um, kind of like putting your yourself out there and, and advising other people on parenting? Like, because, you know, even I, I don't know how to put this, but like 
I feel like people are so parents always think that they're doing the right things in their situation for their family. Like you always say, like, oh, well, this this that might work for you, but this works for us. And you know, sometimes they might be right, sometimes they're wrong. I don't know. Like I worked um, at the beginning of my career, I worked in the Buffalo Public Schools, and I was like a kind of in a role like in between social worker and teacher. So I dealt with families a lot and would encounter this a lot. And I always felt it was really hard for me to give advice, but to put yourself out there and to call yourself the family coach, like how long did it take you to feel comfortable doing that? And like, what do you think, what do you think it was? What do you think it was that besides just experience, like how do you feel, what do you feel like built your credibility the best? Well, I mean, I think it's a number of things. One is I've been working as a social worker for 20 years. I read parenting books constantly because I'm not the only expert out there. There are a lot of smart people who are doing research and writing interesting books on different topics. And um, I have a Ph.D., so I went to school for a really long time to learn how to uh, help parents. And the bottom line is I see parents struggling and not enjoying their parenting time. I see kids at meals and they're, you know, climbing on the table. I see parents not having a second to talk to one another. I see people haggard at the pickup line and I just want people to enjoy parenting more. They had kids because they wanted to enjoy them. Most people planned on it and they're not enjoying the day to day because parenting is hard. And if I can do something, tell a parent one thing that can help them enjoy their parenting time or help their children behave a little bit better or help them sleep through the night so that they can be a better parent the next morning and enjoy the whole process more, then that's what I want to do. I'm not here to judge other parents. I think there's more than one way to parent. But if you call me and say that you haven't slept in two years because your kid hasn't slept through the night and is still on a bottle and sleeping in your bed and you're at your wit's end, you can't take it, your wife is pregnant with the second, <laughs> I want to be able to help you to put that kid to sleep in his own bed, on his own, and sleeping through the whole night so that you can wake up the next morning and feel like, yes, I'm ready to do this again. So I, I take it with a grain of salt. I, no one has to take my opinion uh, but I'm here just to help people answer questions and enjoy their time more. Well, you can find Catherine again on thefamilycoach.com and at the Family Coach on Twitter. And the Sports Parent Podcast is available on iTunes. Uh, you can search for it there and listen to Catherine and Jeff uh, talk about some of the issues we kind of talked about today and obviously some other ones. Anything else you wanted to promote, Catherine? Um, I have a book coming out next year this time on how to ignore your children and improve their behavior. So keep an eye out for that. Oh, that'll be interesting. It'd be interesting to, to see you are the wife of an author. So now you're right. ent- you're entering his domain, huh? We'll both have books coming out next year. So Oh, yeah. Yep. Jeff's got it's on. Brett Favre book in November. You know, I'm the expert at picking out what Jeff is writing about before he'll admit it. Because, you know, he <laughs> That's likes... That's amazing. Yeah, I always figure it out, and I'll email him, and he'll sheepishly say like okay yeah but you can't tell anyone i figured out the lakers and brett Favre. actually i was i i my first guess for brett Favre was jerry rice because i knew uh-huh. it was a football player from that area of the country and i wow. guessed jerry rice and he's like no and then i came up with brett Favre. but i don't know anyway okay so the book is coming out you can definitely get probably more information about it on the familycoach.com and on twitter right yep all right well thanks for doing this this was fun and unique i enjoyed it Thanks for having me, and good luck with the baby. Oh, yes. Um, Hopefully, 
uh, we won't ruin her life, at least not initially. Well, you know a good family coach in case you do. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, take care. All right, I want to thank Catherine Perlman and Grant Wall for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this podcast and last week's podcast featuring Tom Verducci and Kenny Albert on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever podcasts are played. Don't forget, you can find Don and I on Twitter at sports underscore casters and at Don Lake Sports. And you can email us anytime at thesportscasters at gmail.com. One last thing for me this week, uh, the hockey purists and internet whatever keyboard jockeys are losing their minds about the idea of the NHL possibly putting logos on jerseys, and they're talking about like a six inch by like one inch. The logo. NBA is already doing this. Yeah, and I gotta say, like, I don't care. I I like hockey jerseys too, but I I I can't imagine caring. The only thing I would say about it is that if they're gonna do it. Like I'd like something to come back to the fans from it. You know what I mean? Like if they're gonna make, I imagine it costs a boatload of money to fix your logo right, to so a jersey a new revenue for an entire stream. year. Yeah. yeah, I mean you're gonna bring in all this new revenue. How is this gonna make the game more funds for fans? How is it? Uh, it that's what I figure yes. too. Are jerseys gonna be any cheaper? No. Probably not. Um, so while I don't care that it's there, I I mean I. I don't love that it, it probably won't help the fans at all. I'd like the game to somehow be affected by it. I'd like the experience to be a little more fun. And I love hockey, but, I mean, the game can be more fun. Did you see the new jerseys for the uh, Panthers? For the Panthers today. I Yeah, I don't hate them. I liked them a lot. Their old jerseys kind of reminded me of every team that came out in the 90s, like the Carolina Panthers. and like It just seemed like... Okay, we're going to be the Panthers, so our jersey's got to look mean. You know what I mean? Like cool and slick and whatever. This one looks almost uh, almost European or something. Like It's like a shield with like a panther that looks like a panther and not like a cartoon scary panther. I kind of liked it. Uh, I like this really subtle thing they did where the home jerseys say Panthers, but the road jerseys say Florida. Oh, okay. So I, I like that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. They, if I had to criticize them a little bit is they look a little bit like the Senators jerseys. Not the logo itself, but, like, the white stripe through the middle with, like, the red on the top and bottom. They reminded me a little bit of the Senators. But, I mean, their colors, every team in the NHL seems to be red and black and white. Like, that that was the problem when the Sabres went to the Adelphia colors. Like, oh, good, another red and black and white team. I do believe that, by the way, with your Jersey ad team, the 76ers are the first team to sign someone, and it's StubHub. yeah. So StubHub is going to be on the uh, Seventy Sixers jersey. I guess that matters a little bit to me. Like, not that I'm, I'm not for any sort of censorship or anything like that. But I don't know. Certain things might look a little weird on a hockey jersey. Like if Pornhub or something is on a hockey, I'm sure that would never happen. But uh, certain things would be a little bit weird. Like, I don't want it to get to the point where like boxers come out with uh, website addresses scrawled on their backs and stuff. Like, I don't, I don't want anything like that. But I don't know. StubHub well, there's a sense, big debate on whether or not StubHub is good for fans, right? I mean, it's a because it market, creates a secondary yeah. market that is, 
usually false. Sure. And also makes it almost impossible for anyone who isn't a computer bot to get tickets. To get a ticket. Yeah. So I actually saw an article about the Tragically Hip tour and how the tour has turned into a scalper's Scalping. dream. That sucks. You know, and how they have a fan club. They, they have want, a really poor screening process for if, the pre-sale there. Yeah, though. if they wanted it, well, I mean, the the code was machine. Right. The title of the new album, man. What is it? Man, machine. Poem. Poem. Yeah. So that was that was the secret way to buy tickets. Plus, like giving out a code for a pre-sale is effectively like telling everyone, like, okay, here's this thing. Don't tell anybody because I mean that's the only form of security. I mean I don't know. They have a fan club. Uh, does nothing to help you get tickets. Doesn't. I mean they could have done it differently. As they don't charge for it and they don't say it will help. Sure, right. So. They don't. But I'm just saying if you wanted to make sure the tickets got in the hands of maybe. Although how hard I guess a scalper could just sign up for the fan club for free too. So yeah, I don't know. All right, the Ringer launched. Uh, the Ringer, of course, is the newest website. Uh, headed by yeah. Bill Simmons. Grantland 2. Yeah, Grantland 2.0. Yeah. Uh, and I will say I'm very excited about The Ringer. Right? Like, for one, because it's a bunch of people writing about stuff that might want to come on our show and sure. talk about that stuff. Yeah, we liked Grantland. So. And we like Grantland, who were run by a philosophy of no assholes. And generally speaking, the, dealing with the people from Grantland was always a process that meant dealing without assholes. This is a stupid question. I think I know the answer, but Grantland, the name was owned by ESPN, right? Yes. That, so I'm sure he would have just taken it if they would have let him, right? He never liked it to begin with. Okay. But it probably had built up enough of a brand that... Gotcha. But, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, so the Ringer launches, and I'm excited about it. And it's got a lot of people who write for it that are friends of ours. Right. Uh, people like Katie Baker and yeah. David Shoemaker and Brian Curtis. Uh, and it's also got other familiar names uh, from Grantland. Maybe they weren't necessarily guests of the show, but I enjoyed reading them mm-hmm. and I like their work. So launch day comes and I open up. The very first article I see is what's the best thing that's happened in 2016. Okay. So I click on the article and this is the only th- thing I'll say about that. If I'm being critical, hopefully yeah. it's not someone that we like. It's a little clickbaity sounding. Of course, it's clickbaity, and it's not written by anyone in particular. Okay, it's a collection of people who work for the Ringer giving their opinion of what the best thing uh, of 2016. Right. Well, maybe I'll give so them far. that. That maybe that is a good way if you're new to the site to get into the headspace of these writers. Right. So the first person who contributes is Lindsay Kolatz. And the headline to her piece, so essentially the first thing I've ever read on Ringer is Swizz Beats Vocals on Kanye West's Famous. This is her pick for the best thing in 2016? Yes, the best thing that's happened in 2016, according to Lindsay, is Swizz Beats Beats vocals mm. on Kanye West's famous. Yeah, I'm not. That's not. I'm not the target market. And I said, "Oh no." <laughs> First of all, it feels like they're trying to be really cool, right? Like 
in what universe is Swizz Beats vocals on a Kanye West song the best thing that's happened in 2016? Let's assume that that's the correct answer. What is the rest of the fucked up shit that's happened in this world <laughs> that that ranks number one of things that has happened? <laughs> okay, so then we go on. Well, what else? Uh, someone suggests Stefan Curry beating the Thunder with the long-range buzzer beater. So, so far, I see some statement that seems to me that's trying to like be cool. Mm-hmm. Another one that feels like they're sort of pandering to the boss um, who loves basketball. Sure. The third thing is Larry Fitzgerald upstages the Hail Mary in the division playoffs. I could buy that. Okay. Noah Syndergaard hitting two home runs against the Dodgers. <sighs> uh, Under Armour's USA Gymnastics commercial. I don't remember it. Again, that's the best thing that's happened in 2016. Now that, like you said, that's probably trying to be a little bit cool, right? Like, now this, what would be obvious? The Golden State setting the record for wins. Would this be is too obvious. Unbelievably absurd. Mallory Rubin, who's one of the editors, I believe, says Manny Machado has surpassed Bryce Harper and Mark Mike Trout. Excuse me. Since the moment Machado debuted in 2012, I've told anyone who would listen that I chose him over Mike Trout or Bryce Harper if I had to pick one position. Position player around the world to start a franchise. Some laughed. Some called me a shameless homer. Some asked softly and unkindly if I needed help making my way home. I am one of... He's never batted 300. He's currently batting 300 this year. That's through 51 games. And then, of course, her argument quickly turns into war leaderboards and... Other advanced stats that she's comparing to Babe Ruth, and yeah, I mean, I I, just, I dig those advanced stats, but I mean, they have batting average essentially tells how often you his on base percentage. I guess has always been over three hundred, but three eighty four this year. I mean, Mike Trout has finished no lower than MVP voting two every year he's been in the league, <laughs> right. yeah, and this guy has surpassed him. This guy is. Machado, who's a, a superstar player, yeah, could very easily be the third best player in the league right now. But he's better than a guy who's never finished second in MVP voting or better than Bryce Harper, who had one of the best statistical seasons in the history of Major League Baseball last year. And we've been able to discern this in the first 40 games of this year's season. I don't know. That's the bad. Now the good with Grantland. I didn't love that article. It felt clickbaity, but I understand why you might do that the first day. You know, you might want to get a bunch of clicks. It's got a few different sections, sports, pop culture, tech, podcasts. Uh, NBA has its own section, which is a huge turnoff. But, hey, this is Bill Simmons' website, right? right? Sure. There was an awesome, awesome piece in here by Brian Curtis, who I always said was the best thing to happen from Grantland was mm-hmm. the emergence of Brian Curtis. About Joe Buck. Being uh, underrated. Yeah, I, I thought it was just a, an amazing thing. A great article. Katie Baker had a great article about Joe Thornton. 
uh, and Phil Kessel uh, kind of chasing their first cup. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, uh, there was an article, you know, in general, the headlines are very clickbaity. Yeah. Why I'm over at, why I'm over Riley Curry is a headline. Look at the perils of social media saturation. Look at, I don't know if I'm being too critical and not positive enough. I didn't want to be too positive and not critical enough. Yeah. Then sound, I get criticized for like that. Grantland. But look at I'm glad the ringer is here. Yep. And I can't wait to read more great things from the ringer. I hope that the ringer doesn't try too hard because telling me that Swiss beat uh, on Kanye West feels like you're trying too hard. Uh, so I hope that it's not too much of that and that it's more of the great things that made Grantland great. Machine revving tension. 